All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will review, and then we'll get started with our lesson. Father, thank you for the time that we have to discuss um, how we can share the gospel with those to whom we are closest in life. Help us as we review, help us as we ask questions, and think through some of these principles that we would be wise, that we would be bold, that we would be filled with grace. And we pray. Amen. Alright, so I'd like to take you on a uh, quick trek uh, through where we have been so far in this class. This is week 10. It's my understanding that we don't have a lesson next week. I will tell you this, if we do, I will not be here. So you have next week off, whether we have it officially according to the church calendar or not. I will be in Florida getting ready to play golf the next day. So uh, didn't even I'm, not, offer to take I'm not even apologizing. Your own father. I know. <laughs> 36 holes next Wednesday. 36 holes next Saturday. You got fish at all or what? Just golf? What's that? Fishing? No. <laughs> all right, so we have defined evangelism as sharing the gospel in order to make disciples. Week one, we've considered. Week two, the reasons why we don't evangelize is God has called us to, whether that be fear, a lack of confidence, and knowing how to answer objections that we're going to face. We don't know unbelievers. We're too busy. Or maybe we treat the gospel unknowingly as an opinion rather than fact. We have boiled down the gospel down to the essential message that must be understood and must be um, grasped in order to become a believer. And we kind of broke those down into five key points. God, man and sin, Jesus, response, and promise. Then we've considered how our personal evangelism dovetails with God's sovereignty. We define God's sovereignty as the inherent right and power of God to control all things as he desires. And I attempted to prove in that lesson that confidence in God's sovereignty fuels confidence in our personal evangelism. So the the stronger uh, our confidence is in God's sovereignty and his control of every aspect of everything will give us more confidence as we go and we share the gospel with other people. We've looked at and learned and even practiced two weeks in a row um, how to turn our everyday conversations with people around the lunch table or dinner table or at work or wherever we're at into gospel conversations. And we, we targeted two things kind of uh, working on a transition statement, right, to go from the problem that our friend mentions to transitioning at that point when they mention the problem to the opportunity to share the gospel. And that transition statement can bring us into that three circles tool where you enter into the three circles tool and we kind of experimented um, unintentionally so that you can kind of drop in at any part of that in just go through the circles tool and and discuss the gospel and share it in a very clear and concise way. In the last two weeks, uh, I introduced the idea of answering objections to Christianity with genuine, 
uh, heartfelt, desirous questions rather than a defensive rebuttal. And then Pastor Larry stepped in last week and walked us through, I think he got through two and a half. Three. Okay, I'll give you three. Before if you count the... No, no, no. He got through two and a half, three, if you're being very kind, uh, three of the most common objections. We'll cover and, the rest of them in our podcast. Sure, yes. And uh, he wanted me to plug this book, so he uh, depended um, somewhat on this book. It's called uh, The Reason for God by a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor, or was a pastor in Manhattan. I believe he's recently retired. But it, the first half of the book, as Pastor Larry mentioned, it goes through the seven most common objections to Christianity that this pastor had experienced in his ministry in Manhattan. And then, I don't remember what you said the second half of the book was, and I've even read it, so I can't remember. Um, what does the second half go through? The second half. I'm, I'm listening, though, again, so I took your advice. Good. The, uh, the second half of the book, he, he starts off by saying, um, what I've given you is not proof for God, because God's not something you can prove in that way. In fact, he, he takes an approach that would say, God is something you can't, God is, God is a necessary starting point, unless you begin with him, you can't really make sense of the idea of proving things, because the world becomes nonsense if we assume God is not there. So he says, I haven't proven God, but this is really a this is really a good cumulative group of clues. So you should be suspicious at this point. And then the next chapter he takes and he says, and now I want to point out how you probably already live like all of these things are true. So he's he's calling on ways that we as humans behave as if all of the things the Bible says are true, like right and wrong really is a thing. It's not just our imagination or preferences. Yes? You're saying we, how we already live as in everybody, like believers, everybody. believers. And especially, I mean, we already recognize us as believers. But the unbelievers insisting God's not there and, and the idea of God's unnecessary. And yet he can't live his life like that's true. And so he spends a whole chapter pointing out how unbelievers have to live as if God's there because they're living in God's world. They can't get away from it. And then the then the tail of the so at that point I'm like, man, this is this is great. I can't wait to share this with all my skeptical friends. And then from there he transitions into uh, what should be true, how we should look at life, knowing that this is the case. And it's just really humbling. It's very devotional. And it ends with uh, the final chapter, I think, is called The Dance of God, and it it really just highlights how God, who needs nothing and is entirely self-sufficient, the source of all, first of all, created us, and then second of all, has done the work to redeem us so that we can be welcomed into this eternal community of love uh, that, that, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were perfect without us. And yet God has invited us, created us, and invited us to know that love and that acceptance. So it was just very, was very devotional. I, I felt so thankful to be uh, rescued from my sin after reading that book. <laughs> so we have given you, I do want to make take one uh, second to make a comment that we have thrown a lot of resources at you. 
And for those of you that might be like me, hypersensitive and thinking, well, you know, you're already drowning in your own issues and you already have your books that are on your nightstand that you're reading. And now we've just thrown probably 15 different books at you this, this semester of, oh, you should read this book. And wait a second, what about the book that we already made you buy? And then all the other books. Um, so take a deep breath. You're not going to read them all. Um, they all are good, but you, you don't, few people have time to read everything. So um, don't, don't feel bad that you don't own all these and you haven't read them all. I plugged it last week, but I, I meant to do this and I forgot to. I recommended the Audible version of his book. And if you have never listened to a book, I find it very helpful. But the pastor himself reads the book. And he's got one of the best voices to listen to that I've ever heard, at least in my opinion. So this is him. The high theory and the triumvirate of race, gender, and class as the center of intellectual energy in the academy. I answered like a shot. Religion. In short, the world is polarized so over religion. So you could you could see how that's pretty easy to listen to. I Except listened. for all those big words. Well, this is his introduction, and he was triumphant. He was actually doing that on purpose. It is his introduction saying, this can make your head spin, but it doesn't have to. That's what I'm saying, basically. So, this week, um, I have, uh, as my boss put it in one of his lessons that he started last week, he has a very modest goal. Well, I can't say that my, my goal is very modest, and this is what it goes. So, uh, none of it's working. What's that? Convenient technology. Is there you go. I don't know. It is frozen. So I have. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. I have. I, I told you up front. I am not an expert at this. Okay. And this lesson is going to prove that uh, very clearly. Um, and I've wrestled with this for. This lesson has been in my mind for for since the beginning of the semester. Um, but it might totally rot. So I'm just giving you a heads up. But I think it's important, and it's especially important, I think, for at least myself to think through. So our goal tonight is to consider how we can be uh, better share. We can be better share. That's great. How can we, wait, to consider how we can better share the gospel with family. I misspelled it on my own paper. That's awesome. How in the world can we do this? So, first question, and you're probably all thinking the same thing. Well, why in the heck is it so stinking hard to share the gospel with our family? It's what? My, my great difficulty with sharing with my family is the fact that I have made huge mistakes in my life that they know about. Mm-hmm. So I I let the enemy, and I work on this, but you know, I know it's not true, but I let the enemy tell me that I've got nothing of value to say. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to listen to me. But that that is me assuming that God can't circumvent that. Some people really just don't want to share with their family. I, I live with James, and me and James don't talk about the Bible that much. We talk about Grant Cardone or Ty Lopez, but, we, but he doesn't really want to spend time with 
than talking about the Bible or any or passages in the Bible. Families' reactions can be very volatile, and that can be a little bit scary. Yeah. You just want to keep the peace. <laughs> you know they're going to freak out. Another. So, what I would like to do is to begin our discussion inside the home, considering uh, how we can share the gospel with our kids. Um, this is, okay, so I told you, very modest goal, right? So we could spend like an entire semester talking about just that. Um, and I'm going to ask like one question and have some thoughts and then we're going to move on because we have other things to talk about. But um, I would be thrilled if all we did was talk about that personally. And, and all of us young people who have kids leaned on the wisdom of all of you uh, veteran young people who uh, who have been there and done that and uh, could offer your wisdom because at least I can say for myself and I think that I can say with uh, 100% degree of certainty that the other people sitting in this room that have kids at home would value your insight and opinion. So let's start with this. What texts of scripture come to your mind that would highlight our duty as parents to evangelize our children. It's in Deuteronomy. What was that? Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay. I don't know the passage. Does anyone recall where that is? That'd be a good one to write down. I... Where's Google? Can Siri look that? You should go and... Proverbs 22.6. Okay. Proverbs 22.6. Is that one or that one? That one. Okay. So one that I wrote down, I think someone mentioned it. Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read the whole section. So there's two slides with this. So uh, Moses writes, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me, that is Moses, to teach you. To observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, or listen up, Israel, wake up, pay attention to what I'm saying, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, listen, wake up, pay attention. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And pay attention here, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Yeah, I, I know that that's not literal, like literally around your wrists and bind them around your foreheads. and But... That's a pretty all-encompassing picture, right? 
that we as parents have a duty to impress the gospel on our children. Another one that came to mind, and this is again more kind of like, this one's probably higher level, but it's again all consuming, is that it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So we're, we have a job, if I can put it this way, as dads in particular. Ultimately, the onus rests on us. It doesn't mean you don't delegate that to your, your wives, but God is going to hold you even more accountable than your wife to raise your children and instill in them a biblical worldview. Yikes. So, people who have children that have already passed out of their house, veteran young people, what words of advice would you share with those of us that still have kids in our home? How can we best share the gospel with them? Of the same verse as your dad, which was the Ephesians 6 4. Only I thought of the first part of it, which was fathers don't exasperate your children, because that was something that I struggled with wanting to, wanting so badly for my kids to see their need, focusing on negative things. And um, instead of focusing on a balanced view of helping them see the frustration they're having by trying to obey but not being regenerated, not having the ability to obey for right reasons, and just, you know, and pointing that to, but there's good news. Jesus can help you with this. So um, I think that's the balance of that that verse there is don't, don't exasperate your children so that they're just always hearing no, 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 no. Instead, let the no's be something that points them to the good news. That I know it's frustrating. I know you try to obey and then you fail and you sin. But that's because we all do that. And let that point them to the training and, inst- and instruction. Okay, but practically, how does that work? So I'm entering a one-way conversation here. So practically, how does that work, though? Because I have my kids jokingly tell me my favorite word is no. Because they'll ask me, like today, I pick them up from school and have this first question. Daddy, can we go get a Frosty? No. <laughs> we have to go home. So, yeah. I tell them no all the time. Yeah. How how am I supposed to direct... How would you even direct that frustration or something? Because I tell them no. Like, I don't... Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's I just don't... practically, I have to tell them no. Yeah, exactly. Because they ask me eight million questions. And right. most of them are, no, you can't do that. Because <laughs> kids ask dumb questions, right? <laughs> you, well, I don't think you can make every response. You can't you know, do the whole thing every time in one situation. But in general, my kids shouldn't... I look back and I, I would like to have been better at making sure they understood there was a reason behind all the no's and tension they felt there. And, and I don't mean to say I never did it right, but um, one of the things I think I did do well when they were young at helping me give that context is frequently, like like the uh, 
passage about the law says that we would talk when we would go see a movie together as a family afterwards we would talk about the movie and not just what we liked about it but what kind of things do you learn about life from the movie was there anything in the movie that wasn't true and why wasn't it and how do we know that and I guess just bringing what God says to bear on various aspects of life mundane things so that then when I had to be the no 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 um, they understood that it's because there are bigger more important yeses goals that reasons we're doing what we do throughout the day like on a Wednesday there's a reason everything was hurried and rushed between work school and church and it was because church is important we're going to go learn about God's word we're going to go try to grow and be more like Christ so it was very important that that was prioritized and so there was a lot of no's on Wednesday you know if if they were wanting to participate in an event or activity that meant they would have to miss church every Wednesday that was something that we you know if it was if it was something that was going to be a pattern we just wouldn't do it unless that's one specific application of it. Anyone else? I kind of want to piggyback on what you're saying. Um, something I learned as a teacher is that's a big piece. It's just not always saying no to kids and just trying to teach them. And there's a difference between like then asking them a direct question versus a situation where you have kids playing and you're like, no, 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 don't do that. No you have that just initial response to say no. And sometimes instead of just saying no, it's the teaching moment of well, Jesus says um, to be kind to others. How can we do that right now? I know you want, you know, and just kind of talk about it with them and see if they can problem solve. Um, that's kind of part of I think what you're trying to add on to is trying to have a teaching moment when you can. Sometimes you can't. It's not practical. But if you never have the teaching moment and you just say no, you can reevaluate how you respond to situations. That, that I think, is... Uh, that's the balance of... They do need to understand that mom and dad are the authority and they should just do it whether they get an explanation or not. But I think when my kids were, the, were much younger, I had this idea that that was the main thing I had to teach them. You know, you just need to learn that mom and dad are the authority and do what they say. But very quickly, they get to, they can understand some rationale behind it, and sharing that with them when as soon as they can accept it is helpful to them. It helps them obey. And then it also helps them see that even with an explanation, they still will disobey sometimes, and it helps them see their own sin and need for salvation. <clears throat> I think as a, you know, it's important to be ready with your answers so that in those spontaneous moments when they do bring things up um, and kids can surprise you at the most inopportune or unusual times. Um, Damien was sitting next to me in the car. We were on our way to school. And just out of the blue, he said, Yanni, am I saved? You know, so this is a six-year-old kid, you know. And I, I, I said, well, honey, I don't know. What is, what, we've talked about it before. What does it mean to be saved? You know, and he started telling me, so he knew. But, um, 
and then he, he kind of fell quiet. <laughs> and I'm driving, so I'm looking ahead of me. And he was real, real quiet. And I looked over, and he looked up at me. He's, oh, well, I just got saved. <laughs> and sometimes it's just the simplest things. Now, now, whether he did really at that moment, or if he just said that because he saw me looking at it, I'm still not sure. But, um, but he had a way of, of coming up with questions like that when it was least expected. And just rather than being thrown by it, if, if we had those <clears throat> responses already in our, in our bag of tricks, that, um, that it doesn't take us too much by surprise. Yeah. When, they, when those moments come. So, uh, oh, go ahead. On, a, on a lighter note, you you can always respond with the same humor that you find in in what they're saying when they when they say your favorite word is no, Dad. You can you can say things like and be ready, as Jan said, to say things like, well, actually, my favorite word is yes, but I can't always say that, and it do, it will diffuse temporarily. But they can't. But they can't. Um, you know, use the your favorite word is no card when you, when you diffuse it that way. Oh, they don't. They they've actually, to their credit, they've never said that in a disrespectful way. Like when I'm telling them no, mm-hmm. it's usually like when we're just talking about life or whatever, and they'll just bring that up to kind of you know <laughs> remind me that. I mean, they say that their mom's favorite word is "let's go to Target." So, <laughs> like, all right, well, at least it's not no, I guess. Dad, um, the uh, the results of my wife's and my parenting uh, part of it's right here. Um, the other half, you don't know about, uh, and our daughter, who in kindergarten professed to be a believer has really never, except for a short period of time, maybe in grade school, um, early junior high maybe, has um, never really given any proof that my wife and I feel comfortable with that she's really safe. So we got two children raised in the same home, and trust me, um, they both got exactly the same of everything. My wife is uh, Christmas gifts to the penny, clothes, same number of shirts for him as blouses for his sister. And, I mean, everything was as even and as equal as could be along with all the love we gave them. I think what it's key for parents to do, what I don't have any... Um, I guess the word I come up with is liability. I don't have any liability in whether Troy became a believer or not. I don't have any liability in whether my daughter did. That's between them and the Lord. I can't I can't make them be saved. Can't do that. But I can what my wife and I tried to do was create an environment for them where they both heard the gospel, they knew what it meant, we took them to church so they could hear it there. They heard it in our home. Uh, They heard it in school because we sent them to inner city. Um, Every aspect of their life 
was surrounded by the gospel, and that was their environment. We didn't raise them in an environment of live like the world on Monday through Saturday, and then hey, let's go to church and learn about Jesus on Sunday and Wednesday night. Um, they, they were both brought up the same way in that environment that attempted to direct them toward the Lord. Uh, and all we could do was pray that the Lord worked in their heart and they accepted what they learned. And uh, so you, you don't have any guarantee of the results as a parent. Um, you know, fortunately, we got him, but fortunately, we have our daughter too. And her and her husband are what he's kind of aiming at today in the lesson. How do I give the gospel to my Catholic raised son in law? For three years now that we've known him, uh, well, four years almost, um, him and I have had several, multiple discussions about the gospel and what the gospel really is compared to what he grew up knowing. And most of the time, my daughter was there and she would even agree with me, but she doesn't live like it. She could she could come in here and probably give you a gospel presentation. You think, wow! But she's she not could she could give a better gospel presentation than any of us in this room. No. But she's, she's got a so memory. Create the environment, parents. You know your you younger ones. Create an environment for your children that they can grow up knowing about the Lord. And when the Lord works in their heart, they'll work in their heart. So I would like to share um, what I found to be, at least for me, one of the best resources um, that has helped me. It's it's a, uh, a DVD series by a guy named Paul Tripp. It's called Getting to the Heart of Parenting. He does uh, he's he writes books and he also does uh, seminars, I guess, or. or I guess that's what you'd call it. He goes and, and he records these. And I don't know if you can get this online in like a digital download sort of thing. I have the DVD somewhere in a box um, in all my library stuff. But if you can find this on Amazon or somewhere online, I would highly recommend you get it. Um, there's a lot of amazing information in there. He basically starts by going through... Um, like the like some just basic foundational principles of what a family is, and then he goes through, he breaks down uh, your kids like from zero to eighteen. It says here's age brackets. Here's basically what you need to be focusing on in each of these age brackets, um, and it's phenomenal. And you should go buy it and you should watch it. And if you're older and don't have kids in the home, then and you have 30 bucks laying around, go buy it and go hand it to somebody at church that's young that has kids and say, hey, I heard this is a great resource and I bought it for you because I've been praying for you. Um, because we all need help. I wanted to present to you just two takeaways that I have often kept in my mind. Yes, I was say Paul Tripp's new book, it's relatively new, called Parenting, is in our resource center and it's very good. If you only have 
ten dollars instead of thirty. You get that. Sure. It's called sixteen bucks on eBay. There we go. Well, eBay DVD series, sixteen bucks. So here are my two takeaways that I remind myself, uh, or at least seem to frequent often. The first is this: we must first possess that which we desire to pass on. We must first possess the things that we want to pass on. We have a duty as parents to pass on, as you'll as you'll watching the DVD, in awe for God. If we are first not in awe of God, we are never going to pass on in awe of God to our kids. If we um, do not have a biblical worldview, we will never be able to pass on a biblical worldview. We can send them to a Christian school, we can take them to a great church and, and praise God for those tools, but if that biblical worldview is not in the home, um, that doesn't mean that they can't get it, but it certainly doesn't uh, aid in the process of them getting it um, and catching it and believing it and holding fast to it. We are called as parents to pass on the gospel. But in order to do so, we have to be people who are committed to the gospel, who believe in the gospel, who are being transformed by the gospel. So do we have, as parents, an awe for God? Do we have a biblical worldview where the first thing that when we encounter a problem in our life, our thought is, is, well, what does God say about this? How does God suggest that we, we walk through this path? Are we being transformed by the gospel? Is our transformation obvious? Is our sanctification painstakingly obvious to our children? Where we're willing to go to them when we sin and we say, hey, I'm really sorry I shouldn't have talked to you that way yet. Number two is we must help our kids see their own hearts, just like we have been talking about the last two weeks, that we have to um, try to help that unbeliever, right, that skeptic, we need to help them see their own uh, assumptions that they may or may not have, that they, they may or they may or may not be aware of. We need to help them see and expose their own thinking. Well, we need to expose our kids' hearts to them. And we can do that in a very similar style that we deal with the skeptics. We can do that through questions. And here are five questions. These are my, uh, I've kind of adapted them, so I'm sharing with you the way I phrase these questions to my kids. I use them, them often. And when Caden was very, very young, I mean like super duper young, when he could barely talk, I was already asking him these questions. And I think it's actually helped. And his answers were pretty hilarious at times. But I think that there's something to this. So here are the five questions. I'll go at them in order, and the order is important. So the first is, can you tell me what was going on? So you walk into your a room, and holy cow, it's like World War Fifteen, and your kids are just crushing each other. Can you tell me what's going on? All you're getting them to do is to recount the situation, to just what what's happening. So can you tell me what was going on? Number two, you start going after the heart. You say, okay, well, how did that make you feel? So I walk into a bedroom and Hadley and Caden are screaming at each other. And I pull them apart and I say, Hadley, Tell me what's going on. 
whatever. My brother, okay? How did that make you feel? Even though I know what the answer is. Well, she states how she feels. That's starting to go after the heart. Okay? Then, the order of the next two questions, I think, are extremely important. Number two, or number three is, how did you respond? <clears throat> and this gets af- uh, goes after their words and their behavior. Okay, so Hadley, how did that make you feel? I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Okay, well, how did you respond to your frustration? I threw my toy at Caden's face. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the next question, which is, again, going back after the heart. And there's, a, there's an important reason why you do it this order. The fourth question, well, why did you do it? What were you trying to accomplish? And this is going after their, their motives, their goals, their agenda, their purpose. Why did you do it? And here's the classic thing that I wish I could say that it was just the kids that do this, but unfortunately you and I do the same thing. We like to figure out a way to blame the other person for the problem, right? But when you ask these questions in this order, you can't do that. Because when you say, okay, well tell me what was going on. Well, how'd that make you feel? Well, I got, I was, I was angry at it. Okay, good, good. I'm glad you were angry well, how did you respond to your anger? Well, Kaden made... Wait, I'm sorry, but... You responded because you were ang- You said you were angry. And then you acted this way because you were angry. You felt something and you acted out of that feeling. Why did you do it? Your brother? Wait, I thought you said that it was because you were feeling angry. And it helps break that up where, okay, they can't go, they have to like make this big leap to go back to blaming someone else. And the reason why that's so important is because it helps us help them to see the sin in their own heart that they, like Larry was talking about, when you say no, or when you say, you got an issue, it's exposing the heart. And then the last one, and he has it in. Uh, uh, he says it in a much less sarcastic way but how'd that work out for you? (laughs) because usually it doesn't work out well one of my kids is more angry one of my kids got hurt one of my kids got a pain literally on their butt and you get the picture there's a consequence to that sin and it's often pain from a spatula at a high velocity. <laughs> right? Don't want, I've never, I've always, some, I can't remember who told me, but someone told me before I had kids, I heard him in a lesson say he never wanted to use his own hands to discipline his kids because he always wanted his hands to be viewed as loving instruments rather than um, Inflation of pain. So I've all, I've always used uh, I've always used a spatula. Uh, what? I don't care. His mother used to use a wooden spoon. Oh man! Yeah. <coughs> this is gonna get this is gonna get bad. 
<laughs> oh, in half? He saw it in half. A rubber spatula came out, and I didn't know how to saw that one in half. So, yeah, I do recall that the wooden spoons seemed to uh, go go away after I saw it all them in half. I do remember where in the garage or in the basement I did that. I think she still has the spatula. Seriously? It's that white one. That's the one I use. Oh. Is that what she cooks me dinner with? Is cooked this dinner with? She still cooks with it. Maybe she watches it. So, how many of you here uh, are grandparents? All right. So, I have a couple texts I want to share with you. Second Timothy one, verse five, chapter three, verses fourteen through fifteen, and Acts sixteen one. So, just you don't have to read it all. Just listen to me as. I say what I have to say. So according to these texts, apparently Timothy's grandmother, whose name was Lois, played a significant role in nurturing he and his mother Eunice in the gospel. Second Timothy, Paul writes, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, Timothy's sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded uh, now also lives in you. Later on, a couple of chapters later, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. His grandmother, his mother. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm going to get to 16.1 in a second. But having lived this life for a few years now, I'm convinced that the need for the godly influence of grandparents and broken homes is especially important. Notice in these texts, Paul never references Timothy's father and his influence um, in Timothy's life. Luke reports in wherever it is, Acts 16.1, he says... Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy, that Timothy he wrote to, lived, whose mother was Jewish, that Eunice, if I got if I'm getting my yeah, if I'm getting my factory, and a and a believer, so Eunice was a Jew and a believer, but whose father was a Greek, and the, the point that he's making there is that it was a divided home. So there was a believer and an unbeliever. So, if I could just quickly say it, grandparents, do not underestimate the influence that you have in your role that God has assigned to you as grandparents. It is of eternal significance. So, let me shift gears and ask uh, this question. It's going to be a little bit of a harder question, but... I'm going to talk about, or we're going to think about, wayward, unbelieving children. Because often those people live in our home, or at least are part of our family. So what principles, I'm not trying to get at specifics, but what principles could help us think through how we could share the gospel with uh, a wayward child? Um, I'm thinking rebellious. I'm thinking someone who is a non-believer 
or certainly is like wildly living like a non-believer. What are some principles that could help govern our thinking? Principle of life after death and two options that are there. Okay. Um, you know, your mother the other day used the example of Vince musket with your sister she said uh, you know Taryn that man was in your brother's class last Wednesday night uh, not knowing that on Saturday evening he'd be in eternity and you never know as Pastor Ken said Sunday we've all got a, a date we've all got an appointment and you never know when it's your time and the two options are to spend eternity with the Lord or to not. And she used that that principle of eternal life, because there's eternal life uh, either in hell or in heaven. So that principle is there, and she used that with her daughter to tell her again, you, you need to you need to get things straightened out between you and the Lord. else? I'm, I'm just going to say that I, I see the example. I hope I don't embarrass her, but I see this example in my sister because she just faithfully, faithfully, again and again, no matter how many times they turned or um, rejected the gospel or kind of avoided it, she faithfully shared with them. And not in an intrusive way, but in a faithful way. And it's just just persistence and faithfulness to what God has said that we have to do as share the gospel. You know, tenderness and caring. So I have uh, three, if I could put it this way, three quasi-principles, I guess. Um, this is some from uh, from some books that I've read. Uh, it's also just from the life experience, having lived in the home that I've lived in, in the context in which I've lived, which my dad shared about. So number one, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. <clears throat> So I'm thinking big principles here, not specific like eternal life, eternal death. I'm talking that there is no one parent, child, or situation that is the same. So every situation is unique, requiring an equally unique response or path forward. If you, depending on who you talk to, you can, oh, well, that that child is rebellious, kick him out of the house. You know, if it's a guy, kick him out of the house. If it's a girl, uh, I mean, well, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for this because every situation is impossibly hard and super weird and difficult. <clears throat> so don't feel like you have to... Obviously, you want to apply biblical principle, but you don't have to... Oh, well, so-and-so said this, so therefore, this is exactly what I have to do, and this is going to fix the problem. <clears throat> I dare say it won't. <clears throat> Number two, 
So number one is there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Number two, attempt to walk the tightrope of grace on the one hand and truth on the other hand with spirit-sought wisdom. I'm going to repeat that again. That's a lot of words. So we want to attempt to walk the tightrope of grace and truth with spirit-sought wisdom. So we want to be gracious because they're rebellious. They're probably unbelieving. They're going to make stupid, stupid choices because they're immature and they're self-centered. So they need a lot of patience, a lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness. But we cannot, on the same, at the same time, uh, be so gracious that we just like compromise the truth and roll over it and pretend like that doesn't exist, and we just have like all like a bunch of just fuzziness because that's not loving either. So we have to somehow, with spirit sought that's prayer, spirit spirit sought wisdom, figure out how we negotiate those two things and, and hold them in tension as we as we walk this hard road. Then number three, this is easier said than done. The third is keep the line of communication open as much as it depends on you. Keep the line of communication open as much as it depends on you. And I can say with all of the craziness that I've witnessed in my life, my parents have done that as close to perfection as possible by two believing sinful parents and their daughter. No matter where she's gone, no matter what she's done, no matter my, my mom and my sister are best friends. My sister is crazy, and I love her to death, but she is crazy. She calls my mom like ten times a day. Maybe is that a, that's probably an exaggeration, right? Maybe not. Nine. It's pretty close. <laughs> it doesn't matter. She gets off work. She calls my mom. She calls my mom. It doesn't matter what she's doing. She calls my mom. They're best friends. And I look at my mom and I look at my dad and I think they have imperfectly walked that tightrope of grace and truth with a whole ton of prayer. And they've kept the line of communication open. And they have an opportunity to continue to share the gospel with them my sister and her family because of it. So we're not going to finish everything. So, man, I have like another page and a half of stuff and I think... We can cover next week when you're not here. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> do we have... No, we don't no, have... No, no. We don't have stuff. Farther, so I'm going to pray and so I'll tell you what I was going to talk about and then we'll probably get to it next time but the next one is and maybe you can think about it between now and then but um, to discuss so we've discussed children we've discussed wayward children next unbelieving spouse um, and then I'd like to discuss this very, very difficult principle to apply, um, but the idea that there are times when um, you encounter someone who is antagonistic to the gospel and you, for the, the 
to protect and preserve the beauty of the gospel, you have to refrain from sharing the gospel. Um, I believe Scripture teaches that. And I would like to show that to you so you don't think I'm nuts. And we'll talk a little... Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, And then I I have some practical uh, principles that I'd like to share. Um, My goal was to also talk about sharing the gospel at work um, because I think that that is another place where we very likely might have the opportunity but have to be very shrewd um, but I don't I don't know if we'll have time we'll see so let's pray and then we will get going God thank you for your word thank you for your wisdom that you have given to us through it through the spirit and through the people thank you for the muscats thank you for Vince I thank you for blessing us with his presence in this class. I thank you for the clarity of his conversion and his faith in you was so deep. I pray that we would emulate his boldness. He was such a tenacious witness for you that most of us are so opposite of that that we're, we're so bashful to ever open our mouths and communicate your truth that he had no fear he was a bulldog and I pray that you would um, may that be our lasting impression of his desire the intensity of his desire to see others saved and that we would emulate that in our brother who is now enjoying your presence and enjoying the faith that has been made sight. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.